severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job. Hello, my name is Jim McKinley and you're listening to episode 102 of Just Get A Real Job podcast. Welcome back everyone, I hope you've had a good week. If you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast, thank you for tuning in. I've got another brilliant episode in store for you guys today and speaking to us on the podcast this week... We are joined, last week we had a Canadian guest, this week we have two American guests, and we are joined by the brilliantly talented Ellen Sherman and Gillian Gordon. And between them, they'd had such an interest in and multifaceted career paths, both being producers, executive producers, writers, actors, journalists, like between the two of them, they'd done so many amazing creative things. They both currently have a podcast together as well called Binger Bomb, which is sort of about them reviewing TV series from across the world. We get into more in today's episode. It was really interesting, so check that out as well. There's a link below the podcast. But it was one of those conversations where I just felt so lucky to sort of get to have it. It's like, you know, I get, I've interviewed some amazing creative people on this podcast so far, but it was just so interesting to sort of speak to two people from a different part of the world I don't have as much knowledge of as well. Like, I don't know as much about the American film industry or TV industry, for example. So it was such a rich conversation and uh, very inspiring as well. Gillian very kindly um, did this interview from a car park of a studio in Canada, for, actually. So, you know, I appreciate them giving us their time. I also just want to say a massive shout out to Elliot, who's done a very good job of fixing the audio on this episode. As Zoom is often a little bit temperamental, the internet quality wasn't always the best, so the sound did sort of dip in and out at times. So apologies if the sound isn't as good as it normally is. It's still a very good conversation, and I'm sure you'll still very much enjoy. As happened last Monday in the intro, there is a very, very rowdy pub across the road from me. They're doing karaoke right now, so if there's a bit of background noise, that's what that is. But yeah, I think that's everything. I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is episode 102 of Just Get A Real Job. Well, hello both. Welcome to Just Get A Real Job podcast. I, g- I guess I'll start because I mean, we sometimes have two people on this, but not a lot. So if you both want to sort of want to start by introducing yourself and the various, various things you're doing. <laughs> that, um, that would be great. Okay, hi, I'm Ellen Sherman, and I've been working in media for as long as I can remember. I majored in it in college. I went to NYU, and I started off my checkered career as an actress for many, many years, but was always writing. I was a journalist, and that's one of the things is that you kind of have to be a master of all trades, I think, when you're in, in media these days, and, it, and even when I started. So I went from being a journalist to writing scripts, and then, you know, acting sort of, I was doing that for a long time. And then I just concentrated on writing and then wound up producing. And then all of a sudden wound up going into documentaries. So it's been a long, strange trip to a podcast, you know, so it's almost like, you know, we're, now I'm back in radio as it were. So that's the, <laughs> that's the one medium that I didn't do as I was, as I was working through my career was, you know, quote unquote radio, which is really what a podcast is, you know, in essence. Oh, brilliant. Um, all our audience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also lovely to do an international podcast and have some American guests on for a change. We've only had yeah. one American so far, so it's, yeah. it's a nice yeah. treat for and us. I'm in Canada, so it's tripartite, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'm, I'm Gillian Gordon. 
and I'm a producer and an executive producer and a writer. And I live now on Eastern Long Island, but I lived for 30 odd years in the UK where I produced a great deal of television, a lot of it, which I've forgotten effectively. But my work, I started out working at ITV at, at Yorkshire Television. And then I went on to work for an independent company called Film and General Productions. We made feature films and, and television. And then I moved to the U.S. where I ran a cinema called the Sec Harbor Cinema, which had burned down. And we turned it into a big art center with three screens and everything. That was really fun. I've also Amen. been a professor of film and television at, at Royal Holloway, University of London. I did that for 12 years. And also in Singapore, where I started a program for Tisch School of the Arts in, in producing. Still executive producing, still writing, still going. Yeah. Yeah, right. All right. We, we both have very, very impressive and long CVs, so we're probably not going to get through a lot of it oh, in this. Okay. But Gillian, I know you're recording this from a parking lot, and I appreciate your time. And I know you might have to jump off a bit earlier than Ellen. Yeah. But well, firstly, you're actually you were saying you're from the Noon originally as well, which is a lovely connection. Yeah, I'm from, to this from technically, I'm from Sandbank, so I spent my early childhood there. My mom was Helen Robertson of the Robertson Boat Building Yard in the Holy Loch, and my dad was from around there as well and so I spent my early childhood there spent a lot of my summers there which was really fun and have a great love and fondness for Scotland in a way that you know feels like home you know okay well we're running to have you both just to sort of start the podcast we would like to normally begin by sort of asking people about their earliest creative memories and we'll start with you first since I know you're on the clock a little bit yeah so earliest creative memories I think I probably painted a wall I sort of have a memory of mushing a lot of paint all over a wall, which I don't think was particularly appreciated by my parents, but which was particularly fabulous experience for me because it's kind of liberating because I could go outside the lines. So as a, as a memory of, you know, being creative, it was this sort of sense of freedom and, and working in a, a large format. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, what about you, Ellen? Oh, well, I had two first memories when I was thinking about it. One was I got to play the lead as Peter Pan when I was four years old. And my mother took me to see Peter Pan on Broadway, the original Peter Pan. And I remember thinking at four that being an actress meant you could fly which was maybe the reason I went into acting. But that same, not that same years, but a couple of years later, I then got to compose a poem and read it at the opening of a local library. And so kind of those were my two, when I thought about it, those were my two first memories. And it kind of tied the two things that I love to do, which was act and, and write, you know. So, and then it happened, you know, quite early on. So that's those were for me amazing well thank you both for answering i'm excited for this next question which is one of my favorites to ask but it's about how where you're both from has influenced you as creative people so gillian like do you want to just sort of answer this one first i mean i know you'd sort of briefly touched on where you're from a moment ago but i, I mean i'm assuming yeah. you growing up in more than one place is also going to have a lot of influence on you as a creative person i think where you grow up uh, you know has a huge influence of you as a creative person i mean it could be that you needed to get away from it that environment to be creative you know so sometimes that's the way it is for people for me I think I probably was in rather beautiful environments which the first being Scotland and then we moved to Long Island where I'm now I now live you know and that is exceedingly beautiful and there's something about those kind of the sea for me and that kind of windswept environment I also grew up in in Princeton New Jersey where 
you know, where my dad was a dean at the chapel at Princeton. And, you know, Princeton also, again, a very, very beautiful environment. I think also, I think what's what really was crucial to any kind of creativity is the kind of people that are around you. So besides having the kind of beauty and the inspiration of your environment, there's something about having intelligent, open people who are free thinking and who read everything and who try out everything. And, and I think I was all very lucky to be around extraordinary creative people, be they poets, be they theater. I mean, I, I like Ellen, I started in the theater when I was about 12 and my mother painted and my father was a theologian and a, and a minister, but he was a great speaker and loved the theater as well. So I, I think, I think that's all key. Don't you think to being a creative person? A hundred percent. And it sounds very nice. How about yourself, Ellen? I grew up in a, uh, you know, in a sort of semi-suburb of New York. Not really. It's actually still in Queens, which is part of New York City. And and my mother was an actress. So, you know, and she, even though she didn't really continue too much, certainly when I was growing up, her professional career, I had it around me that that was something that was a good thing to do. And also growing up in New York City, I got the chance to be around so many different kinds of people, such a, you know, an amazing smorgasbord of just the people you'll see on the street every day. You know, even growing up in a, in a semi-suburb, as I said, I could get on the subway and I could go into the Museum of Modern Art or I could, you know, and go and see a show or it seemed part of growing up in New York City, I know it's trite, is that anything can happen here and that everything is possible. And especially mm. when you're young, you think anything's possible, but this is the places Gilly was saying, some people have to flee where they're from to come to this kind of an open environment. But I was lucky that I was there. Although that being said, I moved to London for a couple of years to go study theater because I wanted to get another perspective. And I lived in Mexico and I think the places, you know, I, I think that's, it's important that you don't stay in one environment, but I think the mm. New York environment certainly fueled me to see the possibilities of what, you, of what you could do. Yeah, I think John Cleese, he talked about in his book about creativity, just about how like moving around and stuff and trying to having different experiences that like, makes you more creative, etc. basically. Or more neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe that goes hand in hand with being creative. I oh, I think so. it does. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I think, no, but I do think, you know, Virginia Woolf was right. You know, you do need a room of your own. So moving around sometimes doesn't work, does it? I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the idea of going places and being open to different experiences makes you a better person and possibly a more creative person. But I do think for me at this point, as I've been traveling an awful lot, a room of my own would be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited for this question because, I mean, I love asking this to people, especially not from, I mean, I love asking this to Scottish people and people from the UK as well. But I, I mean, it'll be even more interesting for me because I might not know the words, but I love to ask people about their favorite word and phrase from where they're from so do either of you have a favorite word or phrase from i mean you might have two gillian from scotland and from america who knows i don't know i mean i i was we it's so funny i immediately thought spanish because i lived in mexico off and on for a while and i loved the language so i kept i was just thinking of que onda es or onda because i love that word onda you know it's like or you know what what onda is it's it's a source of slang for like what's happening you know it means wave Mm. So, I don't know. That's the word that came to mind, maybe because I love the sea as well. But th there's something about the sound on that, you know, that is wonderful. And, and it also means 
like hey what's happening what's what's your who you're hanging with what's your group what's your you know it's a very nice word and there's a lot of parallels between you both you both seem to have lived in the same places at different points and stuff that's also very nice yeah I think I have I actually know I was, I was trying to think there was no one word but there's a phrase that somebody told me and it just seems to apply to so much of life and everything and I, I'm sure it comes from somewhere. I, I googled it to see where it came from because I couldn't believe. It. I don't think she came up with it, but that the phrase that people announce themselves. And I love that phrase because it is so true in life. You know, when something happens, and one should never be surprised because if you look back, that person or people or situation previously announced itself. Uh, you know, I just I've told my son this a lot. Mm. That, you know, and I've thought about in my own life that, you know, you really have to be aware of what people are saying and doing because it really indicates who they are. You know, they don't have to tell you who they are, but what they do tells you who they are or, you know, comment. So I just, I don't know that it's a, a strange phrase. And as I said, I don't know where it came from, but I just kind of like it. No, they're both lovely answers. Thank you both for, for sharing your answers as well. And something I should really have asked, I haven't even got this written down in my questions, but how do you both know each other? How long have you both known each other? That's like a very interesting question to ask. Gillian <laughs> <Gillian> remembers. <laughs> I, I do too. Anyway, well, we produce a film for PBS called No Regrets, which PBS decided to do kind of a series of quote back page stories. And it was based on a true story of a guy who turns out to be a bit of a had and it's the weekend of his wedding and everything falls apart and Ellen was in it and also helped produce it uh, with the director and it, you know and we got all of our friends to be in it and you know when I watch it it's like a home movie because it's all my parents friends in the party seats right. we borrowed cars from friends and we got a great location and Anyway, so that was the first film. It was one of the first films. I, th I think I, it was the first film that I got a producer credit on. Me too. I think that, uh, mm. I, you know, we met on, on that and it was really, it really, it was like, it was like, hey kids, let's put on a show. It was just divine. We were like out in East Hampton and Emma Ganson for six weeks and making a film, as Gillian said, with all our friends. And then, you know, quite soon, not that long afterwards, but Gillian got married and moved to London. So we didn't see each other for, a, I mean, we had a lot of mutual friends and, and I wasn't back in London for a long time. Anyway, we didn't see each other for nigh on to 20 odd, 30 wow. years. And then Gillian kind of started to transition back to New York about whatever, how many years ago? About two years ago, yeah. Yeah. And so that's when we reconnected. But it had been a long time. I mean, I went to London, we had dinner and all that, but not for a yeah. long time. It really hung out. Yeah. And also oh, that wow. film, No Regrets, was because of that film that I met my husband. Well, your husband's oh, name is in it. That's because it. They, the writer used my husband's name in the film, which, you know, like who the hell remembers the name of the protagonist, you know, the character, actually. Yeah. And I kept on thinking, why is his name so familiar? It turned out the writer had hung out with my husband when they worked at the Village Voice together and, and based the character on him. So completely bizarrely, the film that we produced 500 years ago was at the beginning of my 40-year marriage, which is pretty hard. Yeah. Fun. The, the yeah. very nice that you've like both met on that film and that you met your husband on that film and that you sort of back together again did a podcast and every kind of that's very that's a very nice and story. back together interestingly back together in the same place that we met yeah. you know back together on eastern long island sort of yeah it's hard to stay oh. away from eastern long island you know, it's, <laughs> it's such a beautiful place you must come jamie really it is oh i'd love to come i've never been to america full stop i'd love to get over before oh, yeah, yeah. 
it's on the yeah. list for sure. I've got no excuse now. I'm starting my career, starting to get up and going. I can I can travel right. soon. You know. Well, I mean, there's so much that I, I could ask you both because you both got such a list of careers. I suppose, like, I know you both touched on, especially you, Ellen, like being an actor and both being involved with theatre and stuff. But how did you both sort of get into TV in the first place and film and stuff? How did that even all come about? I'm sure it may be a long story, but in like a sort of condensed way, I guess. Well, I mean, I went. My parents didn't want me to go into the theater for the living and it would be a bit disappointing. So so I went there and, you know, people like Martin Scorsese were teachers and I was really, really lucky. I got a job literally while I was still in film school with a producer in California. And that was working as his assistant. And, and, and Martin, did you say Martin Scorsese was like a teacher at the film school? He was one to? of our teachers, famously oh Martin Scorsese, wow. Hagman Illusion. Yeah, and then I went out to LA where, of course, so most of my classmates, there was like a tunnel from NYU to Hollywood. And they were all working for Corman, people like Oliver Stone and Jonathan Kaplan and everybody all working for, for Roger Corman. And I was working for a guy named Billy Jack, who Tom Laughlin, who made all these successful films called Billy Jack, and and I I worked for him. Wow! So I was lucky. So I got you know I got I got started. I got I had a good job you know reading scripts, working for a producer, and then when I left there, I just started freelancing as a, as a script person and a development person. Yeah, which is kind of based on what I do now. So that's really interesting. Yeah, not quite as impressive, but no, that's I keep saying well all the time. You just both have like keep you know you saying these names. And it's like it's, I'm just a bit like oh my god that's that's very interesting. I think it was a lot easier. First of all, you know, going to film school was sort of wow, it's such an unusual, strange thing. And and then we were like a very tight club, you know. So we all helped each other out when we got to out to Hollywood. We were all giving each other jobs. You know, somebody would call up and say, "Hey, can you be a location scout on something I'm working on?" Because they knew because we did a lot of photography at film school, so they knew I could take a good photograph. You know that sort of thing. So we all helped each other out. But it was also a lot easier. It wasn't as competitive. You know, you could literally take a job and if you didn't like it, leave it, you know, and get another job. You know, it was it was a lot easier. Not easy for women, of course. No, of course. <laughs> you know, it was a nightmare. You know, it was like, oh, <laughs> why don't you start, you know, in the basement uh, where no one can see you, you know, that sort of thing. Or maybe consider, you know, doing editing or something. You know, that it was not easy for women. I was literally... When I moved into production, I was the only woman on a set besides hair and makeup and, and costumes. Yeah, well, wow. that, I think also part of it was, as you were saying, there weren't so many, you know, you're talking about the being the tunnel through film school. There weren't that many film schools when we were going around. No, I mean, no, there, there was idea, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there was, that was it kind of. And so, I mean, I also graduated from NYU majoring in film and television. And as Gillian said, there was extraordinary talent there. And I learned, you know, I learned from crazy people who were directors, Robert Downey Jr.'s father, Bob Downey, who was an independent filmmaker. I was, you know, know, he just put me on as he called the script supervisor. I had not a clue what that meant, but it turned into actually, that was my my cinematic equivalent of a teaching license. I became a union script supervisor. So it supported me, you know, doing commercials and films and all of this while acting, you know, the acting thing is is a trajectory that you don't even want to get into. I mean, you just have to do everything. So I did stage, I did television. I came out to California for pilot season. I did, you know, series and all that. But, you know, I think the one thing that I knew and I know Gillian knows is that you have to make do for yourself. And so I always knew that I was going to be writing scripts that hopefully I could be in. That never turned out, but it did get me to writing and to an another to transition to another mm-hmm. career. I think if you're creative, there's a lot of ways that you can go. 
And, you know, I just took whatever job came to me, you know, I mean, as far as production is concerned, I think the first thing that I really, you know, uh, produced was no regrets. I mean, doing it with friends, you know, a friend gave me the shot to do it. And then you had something to show. And for many years, it was one friend to another friend. And then you had, then you had a resume, you know, so I urge people to do whatever they can for as little money, certainly when you start out with. You know, it doesn't matter what the money is if you can just support yourself. Mm. Yeah, there's lots and lots to unpack in all the in all the both what you said. What's interesting is, I mean, over here in the UK anyway, it is quite hard to get into TV, I'd say. It's quite a very unaccessible industry. It's not advertised very well. You kind of have to know people, which yeah. tends to become, you know, tends to be a class thing as well, because the more if you're more affluent, then you tend to know people and you know, it just helps and stuff. Or if you have friends and family that come in, are in TV, like, for example, I didn't really know anyone in TV. So I was a bit like, how do I get into this mysterious thing? And I went to film school here in Scotland and stuff. But, you know, it, it's, it's it's different now, I imagine, as well. And it's probably slightly different in the States. But as people who are both a bit more senior now and, and work in, in like sort of America, Canada, etc. How do you feel about that? Do you think is it still in the States? Is it quite hard to get into now, would you say, to TV? Or is it quite easy to get into? because of I, the I, matter? You have to make your own product, whatever. I mean, if you're looking for a job or production that's a little bit more difficult and then you have to just go banging on doors and say I'll be a PA I'll bring you coffee I'll do whatever and you just have to luck out but if you're looking to be a writer if you're looking to do anything like that you have to come up with the product I mean writing is easy because you have to come up with the product and it's that you can come up with the product yourself you know you have to have something to show you can't wait for somebody to give you permission. You to have do. to make it. I mean, and that and that is the advantage of going to film school is that, you know, or any school, because there's always facilities and you make that first film, you make it second and then you make the second film and then you make the third film, you know, and maybe the fourth. I don't know. And then maybe you can demonstrate that you can direct or you can produce or that you can write, that you can production design or that you can create fantastic production values. And that's what people are now going to look at. You know, it was easier for us because we could kind of go in and start up the ladder. You know, there was much more of a kind of union, also kind of consciousness, which doesn't exist so much. So you could start off as an assistant to his assistant, you know. I mean, in in, in Hollywood, you're really lucky and you're well connected. You might get in as an assistant in a writer's room if, if you want to write. As a producer, you do have to, as Ellen said, you have to start off making the coffee if you want to be a, a, a director you have to direct you have to make those films and have people see them and then get in the right festivals and hustle 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 and get your you films know, and festivals the one thing that we that we didn't have then i mean so there is a slight advantage of being around now is that as gillian's saying or we both are saying you have to create product you know mm. when we were coming up cameras were expensive you couldn't just go out and make a little film you know yeah now you can take your phone and you can go out and make a short you can make a documentary you can do a lot of things you can edit on you know i edit on iMovie you know on the mac so you can make your product i mean i think that i would mm. stress that for anybody going into the industry is whatever you're doing make your own product have something to show for yourself you know so and if you're you know, it's you're not going to be as great as you're going to be ten years from now, but you have to have a product. You have to, and it shows people that. But it's you're also not, not even. It's not even about the film too. It's about the practice of of making the film also, because yeah. you bring a team of people together. So you know, if you think of something like film that I love, The Beasts of the Southern Wild. And if you've seen that film, it's wonderful. It was all made by NYU people. You know, they'd all been at film school together. They'd all made short films together, and. 
my former students, for example, they work on each other's films. They, as long as somebody will give them a plane ticket in a hotel room, they'll go be the gaffer, the grip, the, you know, location manager, the AD, whatever, you know, to help their friends get that first movie done. And that's what we do for each other, you know? And it's funny because I had a project that I was doing, and this is about four years ago. And it wound up being with Sony and that's great and all that, but how I sold it. And this is after being in the business for years and years, how I sold it was my husband and I went out, we advertised, I think on Craigslist or something for Mm -hmm. a director and a cameraman, because at that point it was still a little bit before you could really use cell phones. I got somebody, Marianne's niece, I got a girlfriend of mine's niece to star in it. She brought in some friends. I mean, it really was, hey kids, let's put on a show. And it was, you know, as this well into my career, but I was still going out and having to, you know, and and it Mm. was very successful. We did, you know, sold the project. So it was great, but it was, you know, Craigslist and a friend of a friend and that kind of thing so that's really interesting I mean we could talk about this for ages but obviously I know we're trying to get through as much as possible I mean another thing I couldn't have you both on and not ask you this and I've been very lucky to have some amazing women on this podcast and we talked about various parts of the creative industry but you you both like have worked on a lot of things and have done very well and both been very successful in your careers but obviously you talked touched on it briefly but and it must have been even harder and they like you know when you started out and stuff but how have you both found like being women in tv and film and like how I mean because obviously that you hear all the stories and obviously it's harder than for women than it is men still like how do you find it now and how has that experience sort of shaped your careers etc because it must not have been easy at times no you just think that men are idiots you know, because of the way that they behave. No, seriously, you know, like to just hit on you all the time. And like some guy, you know, you're walking on the set and some guy grabs your ass. Oh, really? That's the way that's kind of a work environment you want to be in. You know, so it's really nice when so many women now are working in the business because you can actually, I mean, I I did have to finally give in and hire a first AD who was a man because I had an all woman crew. It was so great to work with a woman DP. All, you know, you never would have a gaffer as a woman. They're still hard to come by. But, you know, it was it was such a pleasure to to work with that. That we, you know, that, that we actually looked around and we went, oh my God, there's so many women on this set. This is the best thing that's ever happened. But, oh, maybe we better hire one guy that's the voice of management maybe shouldn't just be completely female because that freaks you know the, the patrimony out so we we hired a first ad who was a guy so that that kind of high that's that funny I must, I must say i think i was lucky and i i don't know if i was nori first of all i mostly was still you know in the beginning of my career i was a journalist and you know as a journalist i didn't find any problems with being a woman because yeah, of, sure because, well no You're because welcome, of the nature, I was welcome to my hotel room <laughs> No, no, no. I'm just, I mean, listen, I was doing, because I remember I did something for the first issue of Ms. It was about the three top com- women comedy writers. All my subject matter was all sort of female oriented. So I wasn't really, you know, so maybe I was in a safe place to begin with as an actress. That's another story. You know, I always used to feel like I was tiptoeing around a landmine field, you know, when I would go into some auditions, how to, how to keep the audition going and how to be considered for the part, yet not insult the person who was coming on to me. You know, I mean, yeah, as being an actress, obviously it was a minefield at times. I just didn't find it so much in production because I was, you know, I was, I wasn't producing until way later, but as a script supervisor, 
I was in, you know, I was in places where I was in sort of, as in, I found them very uh, welcoming, comforting places as an actress, not so much. So it depends on, you know, on, on where you're starting at. And then by the time I got to, I got to really producing, I started really producing with my husband. And of course I was working with my husband and of course I was the producer. So I could choose, I could pick and choose who was going to be on the set, you know, and didn't have much pushback. So I, no, but there's, I, still, there's still always the thing that, you know, we still experience, you know, which is this sort of moment when you're in a corporate type of meeting, you know, with the executives and they, yeah, they still do. do, they talk over you, you know, the, you know, the guys, the guys, they talk over you, you go, excuse me, we, did you just talk over me? That hasn't changed that much, you know, but luckily there's a lot more women in executive positions as well. Yeah. No, certainly. Well, I'm very lucky in STV drama where I work. It's apart from me, it's an, it's an all female team. And I think that's a big part of why it's such a lovely place to work and the culture is so good. And I feel very lucky as a male member of the team to sort of have that influence as well. It's much, you know, I feel like much more supported because of that. And I think, you know, they definitely we need more you know, women in executive positions for sure and you're both showing the examples of that so well you know you get get a bit angry though so you you know what i mean you 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 kind of think why do i have to you know be so kind of you do have to be the ballsy bitch actually you know at some point because if you don't put your foot down and do the what i will say you have to have your diva moment you know and you don't put your foot down then they will walk all over you but look i mean it I love working in my business. I I don't have a bad thing to say. I mean, there's been a bunch of jerks that I work with, but but I have nothing bad to say about in general about the working experience and about working with lovely people. Be it the junior prop person, you know, be it the script editor, you know, the director. Everyone wants to make magic and they want to make it fantastic. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and that's the like what's lovely about being in development or being on a set for me. Like it's every, you know, everyone at every level is what they're doing all is equally important. From the security yeah. guards to like you know the costume people, it's all valid and equally important. I know you are sort of a bit more on the clock, Gillian. So I should probably I talk about. Run, yeah. yeah, I just want to quickly before you run, just ask about Binger Bomb and let you have a thing to say about it, and then I, obviously Ellen can sort of talk to me for a little bit oh. longer if she's able to I mean I appreciate your time both obviously a lot but well, Binge Your Bomb like I mean that's your sort of newest project you're working on like a podcast together and you're sort of talking about TV internationally which is lovely and it, it's really interesting that you're talking about all these shows from different countries I mean I'm going to have to start listening more often as like a development person because it's very good homework for me as well I can pretend I've watched all these shows I haven't oh, even seen the, the, you said the <laughs> right thing Jamie that's exactly what we want to hear well I mean I think the thing that happened was you know Ellen and I you know had, hadn't seen each other while we sat down we went up for dinner we're like talking to about television all these things and we're back and forth and back and forth and we're saying you know we're so tired of all of our friends calling us up and saying hey what should we watch of course this was during right you know during covid and we just said well and, and really focus on global television which is so outstanding a rather i mean american television as ellen says you know it always is on the side of a bus you can you know it's being advertised it's being promoted left right and center but but international television is not and it's hard to come by and, and it's hard to know what to watch but also, we like some of the older shows, too. I mean, there's so much great great content out there that, again, it just disappears in two seconds. So people don't know about it. Because of the kind of narrative coming has brought in, it's made the kind of brought back the auteur, you know. So you have these great directors leading television 
great writers leading television. And, you know, we're totally blown away by the work that's being done internationally. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like, and people say it's the golden age, but it's the quality of TV at the moment is insane. And it's hard, you know, such a range of it. Just before you run off, Gillian, what's the sort of best thing you've seen recently? The best thing that I've seen recently. Oh my God. Yeah, I've been, you know, it's, it, this, I was just about to say, get ready for trough TV. <laughs> mm, I've heard that. I saw the headline of that. It's interesting. I, isn't lo- it? I love that headline. So I'm using it all the time. Get ready for Trough to He because people are cutting back. I don't know what's going on with the writer's strike. We haven't really heard anything here yet and on the West Coast about it definitively, if that's really going ahead or not. But, I, you know, they have been spending a lot of money on quality television and they're not going to anymore. Um, and as you know, people are losing their jobs. So I, I think, you know, what we are looking to, we are looking to international television to keep spending some money, you know, because we do have, we're lucky in Europe particularly in other countries where we have government supported television, you know, so we can do a co-production, um, never easy thing to do, but we can do that. So, I mean, what I've seen recently, which I quite, quite like was, I think we're just, we haven't actually recorded this episode yet, but Cleo, 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 German, K-L-E-O. I really liked that. That was very stylish. I wasn't sure about it at first. It was crazy, mad, stylish, reminded me of Run. Lola Run. Yeah, Run Lola Run, it was like. That I watched recently. I quite like. I've been watching, of course, because everyone you have to watch. What's it called? The Night, night Agent. The Night Agent, mm. yeah. Which is number one on Netflix <laughs> American TV show. They've just they've just renewed it for a second series. So you know, I've been I've been watching that. I can't say like you know, we loved slow horses. Oh I mean, we you know, we loved that. I mean, look, I mean we still defer to Britain, but I think what we've been blown away, particularly by Israeli television, pretty regularly, consistently excellent. Like we watched the prisoners, you know, which was the basis for Homeland. Prisoners of uh, War. Prisoners of War. Prisoners of War. Prisoners of War, which is the basis mm. for Homeland. And that is a fantastic show. I mean, really, really fantastic show. Recently watched, remember The Bridge, the, the oh. Danish-Swedish production? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, well, then they did an American version. They did an English version with Steve Delane. And that is fantastic, isn't it? The Tunnel. You, you, mean, the, you mean The Tunnel? The Tunnel. And I had like gone, oh, no, The Bridge was so fabulous. I'm not going to watch The Tunnel. You know, and they took, you know, they reconfigured the scripts, which is always interesting. They really kind of, you know, you know, they bought all those scripts, but then they completely transformed them into very much its own show. It's a it's a fantastic thriller. It's the tunnel, isn't it, Ellen? So I watched a weird one, the the Spanish one. What was well, it called? Day. Madrid. Well, Madrid. Our day Madrid. Our day Madrid. Which is we about haven't even that yet. it's it's, it's about Ava Gardner in when she's hanging out in Madrid and it's in black and white it looks kind of great it's really from the maid's perspective who's a revolution who's a Franco Francophile because they think they're all commies so it's really different it does not feel like a television series it feels more like an independent movie so that was interesting I did not like it I mean I I, I would come down I think I'm gonna I can give a preview of my thing I would come down on the on the bomb but you know (laughs) But it does look great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, a bit of a preview of what it must be like on the podcast when you both have different opinions of stuff as well, which is interesting. But people can obviously hear more about it. Gillian, if you need to leave, by the way, I appreciate your time. I can can hear little screams. Oh, bless. Well, thank you. (laughs) You're the first person I've ever interviewed in a parking lot. So it's a a record on the podcast. (laughs) Well, it's a Here we are. Riverbend Studios. Oh, amazing. In in Canada, right? Is it Vancouver? It's in Vancouver, yeah. Lovely. Very impressive. 
impressive. You know, they have yeah. they have amazing. My daughter's the costume designer on this movie, amazing. and I'm just visit and they're all, all these people that i'm saying hello to her all been the amazing costume department about 500 people wow. uh, you know pretty pretty impressive it's the big picture with kate mckinnon starring in it from saturday night live who wow. we all love very glamorous compared to the sort yeah. of tv and that was like in scotland i mean i think it's glamorous here but that just looks incredible yeah no it is pretty i'm pretty i'm pretty you know it's a big it's a big movie it's a, it's a yeah. big movie of course you know they're all complaining about not having enough money so i mean i'm still relatively new i get i get wild wild very easily still even by any tv i see like a camera and i'm like oh my god like, <laughs> yeah it's been three years i should be used to it but it's still it's the magic isn't it no it's always it's yeah. always it's always yeah. exciting it's always exciting. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to know what you're what you're watching what you like absolutely Jamie. What, yeah. Oh man, you put me on the spot. So I mean, you might have it in America. I love I adore Ted Lasso. I love it. Sure, I yeah. think it's very nice and fun. I'm gonna plug. I mean, I'd love you. I mean, you should both do an episode on it at some point. Screw. I didn't work on the first series. We just recorded the second. But should watch. I don't Screw. know if you forget where you get in America. But check out Screw. Rob Williams, a fantastic writer. It's all about the prison system in the UK. And you know, you got Jamie Lee, oh, Michelle from Dairy Girls in it. So yeah, be sure to. You should do it. Definitely do a podcast on that. I'd love to listen to your opinions. Great. Yeah. So yeah, we'll check it. I mean, you know, the problem now, of course, as you know, is this the proliferation of all these platforms. You really could spend 500 bucks a month. Really? Yeah. Uh, 100%. And of course, you sign on to them and then you forget a month later to cancel your subscription. And that's oh, how you. Oh, man. I know. Yeah. All the time. All the time. And Brit, then more Brit and more pop up. Good. Yeah. BritBox is good. That They tend to. I'll have a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Channel Unless... 4 show. So I don't know where it would like be on in America. But yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll, 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 we'll Gillian's right. We love suggestions because that's great. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, well, I'm going to run. But perfect. Thank you for your time. I'll see you. Lovely, lovely. Call. And send me, you know, if you think of something, you know, send 100%. me an email. I'll be in touch. But thank you very much for your time. It was lovely okay, to meet you. Stay in touch. Yeah. For, for sure. sure. Great. I'll Bye. see you later. You. Great. Bye, Ellen. Hello, it's Jamie here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated. And I mean, there's lots of podcasts. We all love podcasts. But it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth, and just telling friends and family to listen, or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcasts, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it, it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash justgetarealjob, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. 
So just for the listeners, Gillian's had to run off because she's in, you know, she's busy and was in a parking lot. But Ellen very kindly stayed on to sort of finish off the podcast because <laughs> there's still so much I could ask her. So I guess like just something very briefly. I know you briefly worked. You've worked in London on a few jobs before, right? Is that correct? On like TV? Well, yeah, stuff, well, or? when I was, uh, yeah, after I was in drama school, I was in a place called Drama Centre, which is now part of St. Martin's, I think. And it was very tough to get work permits, but I was able to work on a couple. I worked on a movie with John Voigt who at that time was not some right wing, not <laughs> as he is apparently now. And I worked on a couple of, of projects there, but it was all very, you know, off, off West End because I was just a former student and didn't have a work permit. And so I had to work either on American projects. So, so I didn't really do all that much in London. Mm. Yeah, no, I was just sort of curious. But I mean, um, and to be fair, Gillian probably would have been a good person to ask because she obviously produced a lot of things. But it was more just on because a lot of our listeners are probably based in the UK. But you know, we do have some American listeners, to be fair, and we hopefully we'll have even more after this episode. But just sort of the difference that you'd sort of observed culturally in sort of the sort of creative industries between America and the UK, because there's a lot of similarities. But are there any differences that sort of stick out to you? Uh, well, as as you were saying, I think that because there is still such a kind of an old boy old girl network you know in England and you know the truth is that it I'm going to have to say I don't know that there are that many differences anymore because our you know what is your network of people that gone to public school and Oxbridge folk and all that who or or wherever they went that that kind of gives people sort of a network of people to tap into mm. that is replaced here by the kind of moneyed celebrity network you know when you grow up in new york city and you go to a private school whatever you know whose family is rich you know whose family is famous and and truth be told i won't say any names i mean i have a friend of mine whose daughter just sold a, a script and a series to amazon i mean and she has worked i am not saying she hasn't worked however she started off you know, just as a graduate of school and all that. But her her parents knew people, knew a lawyer whose son is quite a successful and fairly well-known producer. He gave her a job as a production assistant in his company. And so she absolutely worked her way up. And then she got through that, she got to work for a sort of star as an assistant. Uh So, and she was working and writing. And so she's always been coming up with product, but would that product have gotten noticed had she not had the opportunities to have that first contact into the business? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Even myself at that point, I didn't know anybody. I was, you know, as I said, the industry was smaller. I didn't know anyone. So that I think is the same in both countries, quite frankly. The only thing is, I do think that there's more, you know, it seems there's more product here, but the product is better in England. (laughs) That's all you're working on. In the UK, do you think, do you really think so? Yeah, Um, I do. I I really do. I, I, you don't create as much product, but I think percentage wise, you have more that's quality, dare I say, than we do in America, certainly on network TV. Yeah, I, I find that quite interesting because I would always think the opposite in a sense, because I know with America, you guys get a bit more time to develop stuff traditionally. Like I, I think sometimes it, maybe I'm being, maybe this is on the big shows, but I always feel like it's quite quick over here. Like, you know, you only get like three, four months and you have to start filming scripts type thing. Well, I mean, I think it, that, you know, because I, I think that might be true. But what it is, is when I say that I haven't watched network TV, I mean that it used to be, you know, growing up or whatever, the great creative mm. talent was in network TV. But now there's 17 versions of NCIS. I don't know if you have that. <laughs> yeah. Versions of Law and Order, or the Chicago Fire. I mean, really, the stuff that's and or there's sitcoms. There's still kind of sitcoms. You know, sort of the version of Two and a Half Men that are you know some version. Not that that's happening, but you know, when you go to network TV, it's all interchangeable. 
you know, mm-hmm. what as Gillian was saying, the interesting TV is on the streaming platforms. The interesting American TV is Ozark. You know, Billy Bob Thornton, I guess it was a, was it Gotham? I forget the name of it. But, you know, there's extraordinary American television, but it's not on network. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting, actually. So, and I never thought of it from that perspective. And I suppose you're bang on because, I mean, we're probably very lucky in the UK and in and, and Britain because we have like the BBC, which is an amazing institution. And, you know, some of the shows they make, and a lot of them are co-pros, but like, you know, Peaky Blinders or, you know, shows yeah. like that that are international that and Doctor Who and things like that, they are like on, are technically are on network TV for us, I suppose. And I think a lot of people take that for granted. And you, I'd never thought about that, but you know, well, it's a very not, interesting it, point it, you make. It's literally nothing. The only place that you can see good TV now is AMC, which I don't even know what it stands for, and FX, which does not have anything to do with Fox, but it's, uh, I don't think, maybe it does. Anyway, mm. FX TV and AMC, which are two channels that are network channels. And they, AMC, for instance, had Breaking Bad. AMC had Better Call Saul. I don't know whether you have that. Yeah, over. fantastic. Yeah, I love, I love both. Yeah. You know, FX has American Horror Story. I think it's American Horror Story. Anyway, those two stations have amazing stuff. The rest of it, the CBSs, NBCs, ABCs, you know, because they are not, at all government sponsored, really, at all. They are just sponsored by business, you know. So it's sitcom cell. You know, if you do one NCIS, why not do six? You know, if you do one law and order, why not do four? So there's really not, I don't think, that much creativity in network television, but it's all... It sort of goes back to stuff Gilliam was in about trough TV, doesn't it, I guess? Yeah, it's a very interesting yeah, phrase. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Well, just sort of more about yourself, I guess, because it'd be only fair to ask you, but you've worked on so many things. I know you've been a journalist, you're writing books now. I mean, you've acted in the past, you've produced, you've done all these amazing things. What's the sort of highlight been for you in your career so far? I know it's a hard question. Does anything sort of stand out? Well, I think finishing my first book was a highlight because it was really the first time I'd ever embarked on that. And I and it's actually about the two years I spent in London. So it's based in London. So that was a big highlight for me. Another big highlight was I started an avant-garde horror film in Mexico. That was pretty interesting <laughs> years ago. But I produced with my husband a feature-length documentary that had a lot of awards and acclaim and was I think so before it's time and it's still endlessly fascinating. The quality may not be as good as I might have liked it to be, but we did it on our own. We co-produced it. I wrote it. He did the sound. He did the camera. He edited it. It was the two of us and we got it and it showed on Cinemax and Mm. it was called All Dressed Up and No Place to Go. And it was about the lives of four heterosexual cross-dressers and was so amazing. I mean, so this was, and this was in 1996. So this was before people were really talking about gender and and identity and and gender as opposed to sexuality. And it was an extraordinary journey, you know, and again, showed what, you know, for your listeners out there, showed what you can do. We just had a, my, my husband had a commercial production company. I produced for him. He had a camera. We had some editing equipment. And of course, now you've got your phone and you've got iMovie. And we just went out and over a period of two years time, wherever we were filming a commercial around the country, around whatever, we found there were cross-dressing groups around the country. I mean, I won't go into the whole subculture, but it is a real subculture in America and in England and all over the world Hmm. of people that are heterosexual that don't feel comfortable doing this, obviously, in public. It's, It's a long story about it. But what I'm saying is that we shot it ourselves just on our own time and edited yeah. ourselves and it wound up on Cinemax, HBO. 
So, wow. you know, I love the uh, title. Is it where is it still available to watch anywhere? Oh, yeah, it is actually. I think it's, I'd have to ask my husband. I think if you Google it, it's somewhere. I think it's on Amazon someplace. Amazing. And you can well, see it. I will um, try and put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, it's, it's well. really, it's really a fact. But as I said, it was just, it was amazing. And, and it's interesting. And there are ways to, you know, people have to know about, you've got to do your research. I mean, we had, we sort of cut 20 minutes together and we found something called the American film market in Manhattan, which happens once a year. And it's a place where you can go and show 20 minute clips of your film and try to get financing. And don't you know, HBO shows up there and Cinemax shows up and Showtime and all those people with money. And eventually that wound up to us being able to finish the film because somebody saw the 20 minute clip that we had just put together in our little office someplace, you know? So, wow. Yeah, and very quickly as well, your book, like, tell us about the book, like that, so is that published recently then? No, it hasn't been published, and so any literary agents out there, please, <laughs> I had a, I had an English literary agent, and fortunately, her husband died, blah, 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 and I have somebody at, at a major publishing house interested, but I, it's called Chelsea Manor Street, which is the street I lived in right off the King's Road in the time that I was in London, and it's about, you know, it's just about reinventing yourself and being young and being, and reinventing yourself as we all do or hope to do when as we go along i mean i hope i'm reinventing myself now but it's it's not easy to go and just be a stranger in a strange land and try to make that happen so it was about an, you know an american girl that goes to london what happens there so oh, interesting yeah. just on that theme the reinventing yourself stuff like you and gillian both sound like you'd had very like what they call it i don't know what they say in america but i don't know the term quite multifaceted they would say here like yeah. you both seem to have quite multifaceted careers how do you do that because that must be i mean i think our my generation anyway is going to be a lot of that going on and i think it is more common even more so now, especially after the pandemic but for a lot of the listeners that will be in a similar position how does that sort of work for you and how how do you find well, it you know i mean it was it was necessity more than it was anything else to some degree i mean you know I mean, when I started off as an actress, I try to remember how I got into journalism. I really don't. Somebody was a donor to a presidential campaign. So I got wound up interviewing that president's wife. I don't remember how I got started in journalism. But, you know, in that particular case, one article leads to another. If you get published at all, you can use that to get an, another, you know, freelance gig. You have to take the opportunities where you see them. For instance, I was doing extra work on films, you know, and on mm. TV commercials. I mean, that's the lowest of the low. I think that now that today they call them background. But it's a pretty bleak way to be an actress or to start. But, you know, it's what you do. And as I sat there on the set, I saw this person, this guy sitting with the director and he was had a stopwatch. He had the script in front of him. And because there's nothing else to do on these sets, you know, somehow we started chatting and it turned out he was something called, do you know what a script supervisor yeah, is? Yeah, of course we have them here at the time. They're very important. Sure. I was right. actually the first thing I ever did in this industry as well on a short film, a script supervised. I wasn't okay. very good yeah. at it. I'm a so, much better. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, so I, you know, so I saw that and I think I asked, I don't know how I knew this or maybe he told me and he told me he was in the union and he told me how much he made. And I went, oh my God. Well, this is my, this, I am definitely learning to do this. And I apprenticed with him. I would just go out and, you know, sit with him and, and have him. To, and I took, there was a test because it's a union job. And I took the test. So that's how I became, that was my first production job, as it were. 
Mm-hmm. And for years, that's so when you talk about how did you get into it, it was necessity. I was broke. I mean, I, you know, what was I going to do? I didn't, I never, I must say, I never waited tables, you know, never did any service jobs. I did work in a boutique on the King's Road, but as a shop girl, but I didn't want to wait tables. So this was fantastic. I mean, incredibly well-paying, not a lot of commitment to time, you know, it's usually because I only worked on commercials usually. I did work on one porno film, one very soft car porno oh, wow. film that was done by some of my NYU classmates, by the way. So, um, <laughs> but so, so you do you have to take. I mean, really, you do have to take a lot of different jobs. So it was like the opportunity presented itself, and I said, "Well, I don't really want to be a script supervisor, you know, but this is this is great. Let me try this, and it'll help pay for my acting classes. It'll pay for my rent." And that's how I got in, into, you know, knowing about production, knowing more about editing, because the script supervisors, you know, is kind of the, you know, the medium between the director and the editor in the notes mm. that they take. So, and then getting into producing, it was uh, two friends of mine that I'd gone to NYU with. One is an actor named Bob Balaban, who people will know. He's done a million things, and his wife, Lynn Grossman. And he wanted to be an actor, and I was an actress. And we got out of uh, film school, and we started uh, writing together. Because we also knew that the only way to make things happen was to write your own product, if you could, or to get control. It was all about getting in an industry where you were really very powerless, you know, in so many ways. Certainly as an actor, you can't really act unless somebody gives you the permission to do it. You know, a writer, you can write it, you can write it, you can draw, you can... So it was a way for us to kind of control your destiny by writing. We wrote a couple of pilots. One of them got sold to CBS, assuming we wound up because we had a friend of a friend that knew somebody at CBS, you know, that we'd gone to school with. So, you know, that's how I started writing for, you know, for screen and for television was writing with two old classmates projects that we just did on spec. I mean, there was just nobody was going to tell us that this was going to work or not work. And one didn't work. I mean, I have a, you know, I have a file cabinet filled with projects that never saw the light of day. So, you know, and I think I'm just trying to think how I got into documentaries. It was sort of through commercials. Somebody asked us to do a little short six minute piece for Showtime about some actor or something. And that sort of snowballed, you know, but it's all about having product. I mean, I got my first one hour. I worked and did a documentary for MSNBC. And how did I get that? Well, it was because I had the seven minute clip to show of the documentary I had done. And I actually also brought them a story. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing is that when you get into nonfiction television, you're always looking for a story. One of the things that I did that was a real big thing for me was I had a story that I saw in People magazine. And it was about a woman who had gone uh, to avenge her sister's death. And I called her up, got her number from People magazine. I just got the number, you know, called her up and I said, listen, I want to try to sell your story either to like Dateline or 2020 or something, or, you know, can I just buy it for a dollar? And if it doesn't work out, no harm done. And she gave it to me and it wound up for me being a nine year stint as producer at Dateline because I brought them this story. You know, they were, I'd interviewed there before. I was no, I was no more talented the week I brought the story in than the six months before when I'd gone in to apply for a job. But I had been motivated and I had brought them the story and all of a sudden there was a job. So, you know. It sounds sort of the essence of a lot of what you're saying is just about like, 
taking every opportunity as it comes, but then also creating your own opportunities by doing the work and by having stories and, pro- you know, as you would say in America, product and yeah. content as people my age might say now, or etc. And it's a way it's difficult for people because you want to have to love the art as well. And sometimes people get a bit cynical if you call it content because they feel like it's not, it's not art, but at the end of the day, it kind of, well, it is. it's so the same it, thing. Yeah, all ties in. It depends on how you treat it. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, you know, I think... For instance, the documentary we did about the cross-dressers, you could have done a really sleazy, well, it's not its not sexual, so you couldn't have, but, you know, it depends whatever product you're looking at, whatever store you're looking at. If it strikes a chord in you, if you think it's important enough, I mean, I didn't decide on the heterosexual cross-dresser story because you just walked in the door. There are lots of stories that walk into your life or you read about in the magazine or something like that. But I looked at that and I thought, well, this is really something that I've never heard of, I don't know about, but this, there's something more to this here. There's something more about the human condition. There's something Mm. more about people and about their identity that, you know, that I think is worth it. And that's how we got into the store. So, you know, I say poo-poo to people who say it's not art. It depends on how you you respond to it. it Yeah, you can make art and it's 100% and it's about how how it affects you. And, you know, the, the dream is that you use your art and what you love to be your product and your art your yeah, yeah that's that's yeah. the dream and that's what everyone wants to do isn't it i've really got a few more questions and i'll and i'll let you get back because i know you've got things to and do i do and you. i do want to give you my favorite show so 100 <laughs> percent. don't worry i'll make sure to ask that before we wrap up well i suppose like one one of the questions is how do you deal with failure because that's a big part of this industry rejection and failure huge and you'll know this for sure i mean i i still don't know i mean i gotta tell you it's as an actor, I was a lot more philosophical about failure than I am now. It's not easy. I, you just, you know what? I just keep going. For instance, I almost had my first book published. You know, this first book that the one that's my that's my love. And I, I said, there's a major publisher in London. You know, that head of who was one of the biggest. Anyway, he loved it. I thought it was going to get published. He wrote me an email that said I should like to publish this book. I mean, I everything looked. And it didn't happen when he was at this particular publishing house and he left. And I still don't know exactly why it didn't happen. But when that happened, I mean, after all these years, it's been really tough to deal with that not happening. Now, I'm still in touch with him. Hopefully it will happen at this new place he's at. And if not, he will, you know, maybe get me onto some other people that might, because it's not as if I waited for him. I really have had it out to agents and I know it's really good. So how did I deal with it? I started to write another book. So mm-hmm. that's how I dealt with it was to get back on the horse, you know, or get back on the bike. I don't know when you fall off the horse, I forget what the metaphor is, but you're supposed to get yeah, back yeah. on top, get back on the thing that you fell off of. I can only deal with failure by just starting something new, by yeah doing something else. And also I've tried to, I mean, I've tried to keep on going and try to, you know, find other ways to protect, for instance, to sell this book. I mean, and there have been, you know, I had one failure as an actor and, oh, it was such a strange, I had a failure as an actor and the part that I got, and then they took away from me, it was in a Bobby De Niro movie. It was in a Marty Scorsese movie. And And this is sort of a strange story. I literally got the part. I went up and auditioned with Marty Scorsese and Bobby De Niro, but I had known them personally years before. So it was a very tough thing for me, but I really aced it and I kind of got the part and and eventually for too many reasons to go into, the casting director called me up and she said, this is the reason I gave up acting 25 years ago because I have to tell you, you can't have the part because of X, Y, Z reason. And it had nothing to do with me, really had nothing to do with my talent. Anyway, that's my thing about failure. 
is start something new, get your mind off it. You can't dwell in it, but don't give up. You know what I mean? You could still, you know, if your script isn't accepted to one person, keep on going. I mean, I, I was listening to a, a public radio broadcast here with a guy that just won. I forget whether it was not a Pulitzer. He won the man, but it wasn't, or maybe the man Booker prize, some very extraordinary prestigious uh, prize. And he was talking about that. He had submitted it. And I can't remember whether it was 35 or 85, but it was some ridiculous amount of agents and publishers that it all turned it down. And mm. now he just won the most prestigious prize in literature, arguably, you know, so this shows you, doesn't it? Just get a real job. Well, obviously, uh, the name of the podcast is Just Get a Real Job, and we always ask everyone that comes on, like, what's the worst, quote, real job slash part-time job you'd ever had to work? Oh, I hate it. I sold fine china and silverware in a like a home goods store in New York City. I just, I can't stand selling. I hate it. I hate it. I mean, I worked in a boutique on the King's Road, but that was fun and festive. This was just nightmarish. And it was, and the place itself was in the second floor sub, like the basement of a building in Manhattan. So I felt like I was sort of buried down there. That was my, I think selling for me is the worst job. I hate selling people anything. So that was- <laughs> Okay, thank you for the fact that answer. And just to sort of, I'm about to wrap up, obviously, because I've been chatting for a while, but thank you for your time. Obviously, thank you to Gillian for her time as well. I appreciate both of you being on this. And you've given some amazing advice for out. And don't worry, I'll get your recommendation or TV show as well before we finish. But what's like the sort of your closing advice to any listeners that want to work in the creative industries, really? As I said, the major thing is to try to create your own product, you know, is to have something to show when you go in, when you walk in the door, if you want to be in production, and you have a five minute clip that you've edited together and you've shot and everything like that. It shows that you're a filmmaker, you know, maybe on a small level, but you're a filmmaker rather than walking in and saying, well, you know, let me do something. You've already done it. It, it shows enthusiasm. So have product. If it's, if you want to get a job as a writer, which is going to be, you know, sort of impossible, do one script, do two scripts, send them out to a million people, just have product. And, and as you said, perseverance, if one person doesn't want you to do things for free, like Gilling was saying, you know, the network of your friends are going to be maybe where you're going to get your first job from. And it may not be your friends. It'll be a friend of a friend that saw something you did. Yeah, 100%. Thank you very much. And just to close on, what TV shows would you recommend? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, for something that was just incredibly fun and my version of the sort of the 2022 Love Actually uh, and actually, the film itself sort of spoofs love, actually, was a, a Norwegian thing called Home for Christmas, which is just delicious and hysterical and just charming. Another one was Money Heist, which is one of the mo the fiercest, most dynamic thriller, a mystery, not mystery, it isn't a mystery. Mm. It's a, a heist movie, but it goes on for four seasons. It's Spanish. And I actually cried when two of the characters were killed. So it's amazing. So Money Heist, I would say, we do both love Line of Duty, which of course mm -hmm. everybody in the UK knows about. And uh, two more, Borgen, which is an amazing drama set in, uh, I can't remember, I, I believe it's Denmark or Norway. It's Denmark, I believe, about a female prime minister, which is a great political thriller. And sort of a sleeper for me, my last one, is a South Korean romantic drama saga called Crash Landing on You that kind of takes a look at the South Korean version of the Murdoch family. <laughs> mm. 
and has one of the heirs to the family crash land in North Korea. And it's about how she tries to get back and falls in love. And it's just wonderful. So and also all the check out the Israeli series. There's a great Israeli series called Flags of Our Fathers, which is about a false flag operation in Israel. But a lot of great stuff from Israel. So that, that's yeah. sort of my brilliant. And where can people find Ben? Uh, on any, on uh, Google, Apple, or Spotify podcasts. And also, I urge people because we do we do three series in every podcast, and we give when you go onto the podcast site, it'll give you a small synopsis of each series. Uh, and our website, which is www.bingeorbomb.com also has great synopsis of each of the series within each of the episodes. So you can look at that and say, oh, well, none of these series really interest me. And, you know, you don't have to listen to that episode, but then you can see, oh, that one looks kind of interesting. Let me hear some more about it. Great. Well, obviously I'll link that underneath this when it comes out as well. And just follow us on instagram <laughs> 100 and shout out to alice as well previous guest on this podcast for putting us in touch as well much oh alice you know. she does a brilliant job oh, oh she's fantastic God. yeah she she's was a great incredible. guest she's a rock star honestly we're, we're so happy that she's doing yeah. this be sure to scroll down and listen to the episode I did with her back in the day. So, you know, it was a very lovely episode. Ellen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy meeting you and I hope you, you have a lovely day. I know it's still earlier where you are, but it's yeah, half nine here, so it's nearly time for bed. Yeah, well, uh, listen, and, and much luck to you and any, you know, any help that we can be to you, you know, that's part of it. You know, you have to pass it forward. So anything that we can do for you, you let us know and, and we'll be thank happy you. to give you off their advice or whatever else. <laughs> there we go that was episode 102 of just get a real job podcast i hope you enjoyed thank you again to ellen and gillian for their time it was such a joy to chat to them and very much appreciated remember to check out their podcast binge a bomb as well remember to share this podcast on social media etc to tell friends and family if you enjoy yeah we're an independent podcast so any help we can get goes a long long way as always massive shout out to ellie mitchell for editing this podcast and thank you to amy dinsdale for designing the artwork to this podcast thank you to liam rutherford for doing the poster designs on this podcast as well and I hope you all have a lovely week just get a real job